Welcome to another episode on Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. I am here with another outstanding guest and someone who's going to bring a perspective that I think we don't get enough of in education. Actually, I was just just sharing with her how excited I am to have her voice and her insight bring brought into the education fold as so many of us are pressured with the buzzwords of creativity and critical thinking and problem solving. And probably for a lot of us, we don't always think about... Um, dinosaurs and not just dinosaurs there's so much more to to uh what this awesome guest does but i'm really excited to to bring this uh person to the fold and i'm speaking about no other than um the awesome callie moore who just recently published a book the priest or tales of the prehistoric world adventures from the land of dinosaurs um but she's way more than just that book and so callie i think it's always best uh, to let the guests introduce themselves. And so I will let you share with everybody who you are, what you do, and what you got going on. You got just a few things happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Very excited to be talking to you today about all things paleo related and innovation and creativity and all these <laughs> things. So thanks for having me on. So my name is Callie Moore. Um, since 2008, I've been the collections manager of the University of Montana Paleontology Center. So I'm basically a fossil librarian. Um, so I keep all the fossils uh, inventoried and curated and accessible for research and things like that, supervise volunteers and do a lot of informal educating and outreach events and things like that. That. And then since 2017, I've been a co-host and content consultant for PBS Eons, a YouTube show that is dedicated to the history of life on Earth. And then, like you said, just this month, last month, uh, my first book dropped, so Tales of the Prehistoric World. Um, it's for all eight, well, it's it's rated for eight to 10, but really it's for all ages. Anybody that loves um, the ancient past and the book goes through so much. It starts about 3.5 billion years ago and works its way all the way to about 4,000 years ago. There's a lot, it's a lot. <laughs> just a little bit of a time span there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> well, I think, you know, like one of the through lines, you know, being fortunate enough to have you be an expert for, for some classroom learning opportunities that, uh, we've been able to connect with and, and also just seeing your work um, through PBS Eons, which is a, a phenomenal show and, and just getting to know more of your work is that idea of story um, and building these through lines. And, and we know that story resonates with all of us as humans. It's, it's story is how we've continued to understand the past and things of that nature when we didn't have a written language and then all the, all those things. But before we get into to that, like I, what, I, what I'm curious about is, is like, what's your story? Like a paleontologist, I think I'm, I'm thinking about students in this day and age and, and how many kids love that topic, but yet at the same time, how many also don't connect the dots that that can also be a career if that's something you're passionate about. And not that it's all yes. about jobs, like what's your story? How did you get into this world of paleontology? Because it's, 
it exists, it's been around, but I think as, like we said, we always future thinking and what's next, what's next? People forget that like, these are, it's, it's still a thing. Not that it should be lost. Yeah. So, so yeah. how did you get into the fold? Uh, it's funny you mentioned all, uh, f- several of those things. So I was a big paleo nerd as a child. I, um, I was a little kid before Jurassic Park came out. And so I actually got hooked in paleo with Land Before Time. So I always kind of really resonated with Sarah, the triceratops, being confident and headstrong and stubborn. I'm like, yeah, that's me. That that's me. I'm that person. Or I'm that dinosaur, I guess. <laughs> and um, and then Jurassic Park came out and it showed real paleontologists, you know, on the big screen. And that was even cooler. So I'm pretty sure I knew very, very early on by about second or third grade that I wanted to be a paleontologist and that and nobody could sway me. But what was funny is what actually swayed me away from paleontology, because I did go away from paleontology for a little bit, was in high school. And I'm not sure if somebody said something to me. I don't remember anything, but for whatever reason, I got that disconnect. Like, this isn't something that people do for a real job. Like, I don't know who these paleontologists are, but they can't be making money, right? Like, this isn't like a real job. So I was like, I need to get a real job. So I actually started college as a secondary education major. I was going to be a high school biology teacher. Um, And the program that I was in, I didn't quite agree with. Um, The program didn't require you to take any higher level classes in the field that you wanted to take all your higher level classes were about curricula and dealing with unruly students and how to take care of a classroom but like the basis of your understanding of what you would be telling these children and teaching these children were like 100 level classes Mm. and that did not vibe well for me I was like no I want to be an expert in my field and then you know kind of figure out the rest of it from there and so as part of my kind of biology science degree, I had to take physical sciences. So basically geology and planetary sciences and things like that. And I remember the first week, the first class of my physical sciences class, I was like, oh yeah, this is it. These are my people. This is my language. And I immediately went to my advisor and then went to administration and changed my major into earth science. Um, and started my track with a basically a geology focus with a paleo minor and towards the end of my my undergraduate my advisor was really pushing for grad school I was not there yet changing your major like midway through I think it already had like two years under my belt or close to two years Um, I had a lot of making up to do And so I went from taking normal credit hours at the very beginning to like extreme credit hours towards the end and taking credit hours all through the summer. So I'd only have to be there like a semester over four years, but get it all done. So I was kind of burnt out to say the least. And thinking about going to grad school was like, oh, just migraine inducing. I was like, I just don't think I can do this. I need a break. During this time, I was in a class called Geo Writing and Geo Literature. It was a brilliant course. It was all half of the class was learning how to write and read in geosciences. So, learning how to digest geosciences, uh, peer reviewed journals. Like, he would give us the journal article, but remove the abstract, and we would have to write the abstract, things like that. 
the other half of the class was mock application processes. And so on this day, when we started this kind of uh, fake application process, my professor hands out, I think it was called, is it called GeoTimes or Earth Magazine? It's it was the pandemic casualty, unfortunately. But anyways, this magazine in the back of the magazine had pages and pages and pages of job announcements. This was one of the best places for geosciences job announcements that I have ever seen since then. One place. And I found the job announcement for my job at the at University of Montana. And it was still open. The application period was still open. I must have gotten a very recent edition. And I told my teacher, I was like, this is it. I want this job. This is perfect. And he was just like, well, are you ready to do nothing but like eat, sleep and breathe your resume and cover letter? Cause we hadn't even started it yet. I had no resume. Like, right. Right. And I was like, yes, I am. So I spent like the next two weeks straight doing nothing but building a resume. Obviously I was way ahead in the class um, to get all my stuff in. And this was probably late September, uh, early October when the, um, when my application packet was due and I kissed it and sent it off into, into the world. And I was like, fingers crossed. Um, somewhere in November, I think I had a phone interview. And then towards the end of November, they asked me if I could fly up to the university and have a bunch of in-person interviews, which was really exciting, except that they wanted me to come up during my finals week which was going to be my last finals week of college. And I was like, ooh, and they wanted me up there for five days. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I can't do that. Uh, I still need to take finals so I can graduate. So if you do offer me this job, I can take it. Right. So they smashed it down into a three-day trip. And I had to smash all my finals into the Thursday and Friday of finals week. So I come up here. It was a whirlwind tour. I met everybody under the sun on campus, got back on a plane, got trapped in Denver for like eight hours, didn't get home until like two o'clock in the morning on Thursday. My mom was like, oh, you are not driving home yet because I lived about, my parents live about an hour and a half-ish away from where I went to college. And so I got like a few hours of sleep and I had to drive again, get up at like six in the morning to drive down for an 8 a.m. start to my finals marathon for the next two days. And I'm pretty sure all my my professors were just like, yeah, you passed, whatever. Right, right. <laughs> well, if I bombed the final, they just gave me the grade, whatever I had before the final. Like there was, there had to have been some love for me. Right, right, <laughs> because, right, like, right my brain was like just toast at that point and then I don't know I think it was like mid mid-December like right after finals week a couple weeks after finals week I was sitting in the library finishing up my senior thesis and I got the call for the official job um uh request or uh job job offer there we go uh about Two weeks after that, I was in the the library finishing up my senior thesis when I got the official job offer. And I'm pretty sure I like stood up and was like, whoa, in the middle of the library. <laughs> Violating <laughs> then, the library rules, right? <laughs> yep, and then stepped back down and was like, oh, yeah, right. now I really got to get all of this done. Uh, so I had about four weeks to wrap up everything in Kansas and pack up my life and move to Montana. So um, the job started in mid-January of 2008, and 
shockingly, I have been there ever since. So, yeah, that's awesome. It's an awesome yeah. story. And I think it's just one of those things, right? Like, I think some people have that intuition of they know what they want to do. And sometimes you got to go sometimes off the path a little bit to realize that's really what you want to do. And then there's the other side too, right? Where you're like, man, this is what I want to do. I know I want to do. And then you get into it. You're like, uh, maybe not. And so that's, that's and that's what I love is this idea of just being able to pivot and be nimble. And in your case, it worked out really well that you kind of had to see the other other side to realize the grass isn't necessarily greener, like boom, these are my people, um, which is awesome. And so here you are now in this awesome gig. And so talk to me a little bit now about this and like the work that you do, like the idea of like inquiry and curiosity and how that continues to propel in your work. Um, obviously you have a mass amount of knowledge in the work that you do and you have a passion for it and anyone who has a passion for anything we we absorb that information but you know as, as you're thinking about constantly like looking to the past um to make sense of things like how i know it does that's a dumb question but like how does that play into like your day-to-day -day operation because i think that's something we all talk about we say the words but then like what does that really mean for people you know when we get outside mm -hmm. of like the classroom um and and i know you're in a classroom technically with the university but you're but you're doing really cool stuff with with fossils and all the other things in the library collection so um how does that work for you yeah so i i am in a interesting position on an academic campus because i don't teach courses nice. so okay. i'm 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 not teaching any graduate or any college level classes or anything like that all of my educating is mostly informal, either through tours with K through 12 groups or um, informal educating with my volunteers. So I have a huge group of student volunteers, both student and non-student volunteers. And so where a lot of my inquiry comes from is my collection. So I've been there now for almost 15 years. I think I know everything that we have. And every once in a while, especially my cases, I have these big, like three feet cases and they're stacked three high. And I do not get on that third tier very often because it is a pain. I have to get out this giant ladder. You're up against the ceiling. Like it's just not, it's not the best. And so every time I get on that third tier, I find something and I'm like, what's this? What's that name? I haven't seen that before. I wonder who's working on this. And so I try to be the grand facilitator of science. So since I'm not doing a lot of the academic work, the actual science and uh, or um, describing new species and things like that, I'm always looking for researchers who do that. They write grants to find new species type of thing. And so that's what I, I always joke is, is that I am the science facilitator. I am the research facilitator. I find things that need to be done. I seek out the people that are working on those and be like, hey, check out this fossil. Isn't it great? Nobody's described it yet. Would you like to describe it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so we don't do a whole lot of paleo on the university of Montana's campus anymore, but we are incredibly active within the paleontology community. And so I have loans all over the world to researchers working on everything from coral to vertebrates. And so um, I just send out the specimens and let them hold on to them for as long as they need, hopefully not 30 years, like some of our old loans, but 
oh, I'm a little, I keep a little bit better track of our loans now than people did in the past. Right. So they don't go into right. 30 years anymore. But yeah. yeah, we get tons and tons of papers written. Um, we usually have it, I would assume on average of about five to 10 papers every single year that are written specifically on specimens from our collection. And that includes new species to science. So those would be like holotypes. So specimens, this is the namesake of a genus species is this specimen right here. And we have quite a few of those in our collection. And we, like I said, about every single year, we get a handful of new um, holotypes and just papers written on the collection. So that's mainly what I try to do is I'm always on the lookout for interesting things and also ancient life piques my interest that is for whatever reason that's the only thing my brain is like yes mm. please more yeah. and so whenever I see something interesting it could be a news article it could be a specimen in our collection it could be a misspelled genus name sends me on so many rabbit holes I just get down it well what's this well what's the right spelling well what is it well when was it found well where is it found you know like and I want to know these things. This is gen genuine interest here. And so I look it up and then for whatever reason, it's like committed to memory and it's <laughs> in there forever. <laughs> so, <laughs> I hope to do a little bit more actual real research someday. I have um, this little locality that's close to Missoula here um, that no, well, actually a lot of people have just recently like rediscovered it. And mm. so um, I'm hoping to kind of get a dream team together with the U.S. Forest Service and some plant uh, people and some fish people and um, some herpetology people and just kind of just describe this site in all of its glory all together. And so I'm hoping that that'll pick up maybe in a couple of years. But for the most part, like I said, I am a research facilitator for the most part. And I love that. I love that you bring that up too, that like we don't have to be the expert in all the things. And I love how you, you brought that up, that idea of community. And again, stuff that everybody talks about all the time. And I know, especially in the K-12 education world that I work in, as the educator or as the admin, sometimes there's this individual pressure that, like, that we have to be all the things all the time versus going, you know what? I don't know. And I'm going to reach out, you know, and I think about perfectly, a perfect example is bringing you in with our project on survival. Like, okay, there's a lot about the past and yes, I can hold a conversation with kids, but I, I can't hold it enough to create that spark, that inquiry and wonder, you know, and so find the people who do that and do that really mm -hmm. well, you know, and I'm, and I'm glad you brought that up in, in, into the work that you do because like we can't do it alone. We got to do this stuff with with others in order for it to be successful. Otherwise, we burn out um, and and all those things that come with it. And so, as you were talking about your passion for ancient life, and then as you get down those rabbit holes and you get all those questions and you're seeking all this information, um, and I'm also thinking about like just how the stories of PBS eons come together. So you 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 have this inquiry you're finding those, these, these answers or you're finding this information to develop an answer. That next piece then is goes into like story mode. And mm -hmm. so we can capture the information, but if we can't convey it to others, where does it sit, right? Like where does it house and not just physical space, but mental space and, and through time. What's your process then? Like to then you go these rabbit holes to then 
tell a story or to weave it into a narrative um, that excites the next person, you know, as you're doing your tours or uh, chat with people like me or the students. What's your process with that? Because I think that's also a vital skill uh, that there are people who know things, but they know it and they can't articulate it. And therefore it doesn't do us a whole lot of good either. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's see. That's a great question. And I think there's two different facets to it. Sure, there's sure. one, there's, there's fun sound bites. I'm really great at fun sound bites. When I give tours, I could talk about all the cool stuff about T-Rex for hours because we know a lot and yeah. I've committed all of that stuff to memory. So I'd be like, it's this big and it's that big and it bites this hard and it does this and it can see that. And so just enthusiastic sound bites. Usually when I'm working with like kids and doing tours, family tours, non-expert tours that sort of thing yeah. it's just cool sound bites here's this awesome fact and here are these big numbers and here's this big animal you know just like whoa 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 but eons is a totally different thing yeah. that's really when we get into the storytelling and sometimes my rabbit holes can lead to a potential script someday maybe it might lead to a tiktok so now that eons has the flexibility to do small science in yeah. TikTok and YouTube shorts, we have a little bit more flexibility because we call our YouTube channel Eons Prime because we, we're kind of all over the place now. So Eons Prime. With Eons Prime, we do need a very through story. It, it, the story could end with, we still don't know, but it still has this wonderful story. There could be some twists. We love twists. We also love sassy science. And so when you get like peer reviewed journals that are like, oh no, this other author was completely wrong. And let me tell you all the reasons why, you know, like yeah, when yeah. it gets a little spicy, you know, right, we, like, right. we like that. And we also like twists. Like we thought it was this for a million or a hundred years, not a million years. Uh, we've thought it was this for a hundred years. And then all of a sudden we find this new specimen that turns the science completely around on its head. And so those give good stories, but not every single thing that is cool in the fossil record can make a good Eon story. Sometimes we just, we're just like waiting for one more paper. We just need one more thing to kind of flesh out the story, to make it a little bit more, to get it to that seven minutes, you know? <laughs> so um, the evolution of giraffes, we've done the headbutting giraffe episode, but not like a straight up evolution story on giraffes yet and it just hangs out in our purgatory list we have a purgatory script list of all these things that we would love to do but there's just not the that eons thing you know like we just right. we, we don't quite have it yet um and so we have bi-weekly meeting or bi-weekly yeah every other week meeting um for pitch ideas and it's just a bunch of brilliant people that get on Zoom and we basically try to one-up each other with facts. And some of them turn into TikToks, some of them get put on the script list and we just have a great time. It is my favorite meeting that has ever taken place in the history of meetings. Like we ended our first season of TikToks and we were kind of between funding and so we canceled this meeting and everybody was just like no can we just still have the meeting and so we actually turned it into a pitch meeting so even if we're not making TikToks anymore 
we're still going to have that meeting to pitch new ideas for Eons Prime or if we ever bring back the podcast or YouTube shorts or whatever. Um, we we will still have that because it is it is a great time. Great time. The tangents that we get on is just bizarre. The things I've learned from other people, extreme, like it's a good time. But yeah, making an Eon story is tough. And luckily we have a group of brilliant writers and they really see they have compartmentalized eons to the point where they can recognize like, yes, I can make that into a story. No, not that one quite yet. You know, like they can see it just by looking at it, kind of whether or not it would make a good eon story. Yeah. So how do you, how, I mean, some of the stuff I know just happens organically and it's, it's part of the work that even like I'm trying to get to now on this like meta level of like, here's the craft of, of, how we try to create inquiry in the classroom and authentic learning experiences. And while some of the things I work with some incredible educators and you ask them like, well, like what was your thought process behind that? And they're like, well, we just, we just do it because that's just what they do. It's just who they are. Right? It's in their DNA, but it's like, well, how do we help bring some of those things out for others to learn? And so you're talking about that, that pitch session where that energy is there. There's something so powerful about community where, you know, it's, it's, it's really a sharing of gifts and the gifts here are these ideas and this energy that flows back and forth. And, you know, you're talking about how the writers now kind of have that lane, like they know when the green light clicks and this and that, as, as you guys are going through, like the, how did you build that that synergy? I mean, I don't think it was probably, I mean, like most things, it wasn't like it was so intentional, like, well, step one, we did this and step two. But, you know, as, as you're looking back on that, because I think that's just such a, a vital piece to anything around, like this exploration of the world and ourselves, whether we're looking in the past or present or future, or we're trying to figure out how to create those sparks for students in the classroom or for adults to continue to be lifelong learners. Like, how did that, I mean... I know it just kind of happens when people are excited, but you know, as that evolves, because you can also hit that stagnant point where it's just like, oh, it's not fun anymore. And it doesn't sound like that's happened. So what like what are some of those key things that, you know, with the teams that you're working with? Right. Um, let's see. For for Eon specifically, we just kind of threw a bunch at the wall and it has slowly been sticking. Um, so when the channel first started out, we were kind of Kind of all over the place we had a really small team we had a very small pool of writers we weren't a hundred percent sure we did have a kind of the storyteller czar if you will so we had kind of our main content editor that would ask all these questions like why do i care why would the audience care like what is going to be the the big reveal at the end you know like kind of helping the writers kind of stumble their way through to make these scripts. And so we also had two different types of links when we first started. We had short um, short versions and long versions. So our short episodes were about five minutes. Our long episodes were about 10 minutes. And we have kind of come down to where we're right in the middle. Most of our episodes are about seven to eight minutes now. Sometimes they'll get a little bit longer, but most of the time we've kind of stuck in that middle area now. So that helps you kind of have a word count that you're shooting for now. We have worked with dozens of writers and some can see the Eon's vision better than others. And so we usually 
stay with the ones that can see that vision better. We used to think that having a huge pool of people was easier. It is not. It's very hard to keep track of people. And a lot of our writers are professional scientists. And so during the school year, they're usually available to write. But in the summertime, poof, we lose like 90% of our writers to the field. Um, and so that was really tough. Our summer times were really lean when it came to our writers. So now we've kind of gotten down to, um, we have one head writer that writes most of our scripts. And then if we want to do a script about something that is kind of outside of his expertise to the point where he's like, eh, I don't know, uh, especially like big geology based episodes are usually written by one or two other writers that are more geology based writers. So we really try to play to people's strengths. And we, like I said, we've tried out a ton of writers and we try to keep the ones that see the eons formula the clearest. I don't do too much of the writing process um, other than pitching ideas and then I fact check all the scripts. So um, I read everything many times and fact check everything that goes out into the world, um, but I don't write scripts. So their actual script writing process, I, I don't know how they do it. I'm sure they just start off with a bunch of peer review journals and then, okay, what's the hook at the beginning? What's going to keep people watching this episode through the intro? Okay, where's the meat and potatoes in the middle? Okay, what is the big reveal, the wrap up at the end type of thing, you know, kind of piecing out those three main elements of the episode. Um, but I could talk more about my process with writing the book though. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was like, well, so maybe, I mean, it's not so much about writing the script, but just that, but you have written a book and and so much of, you know, as, as you're talking through all these things is really understanding your audience. You know, you're talking about, you're working with kids coming through and, you know, like the wow factor and it would be different than if you're coming in and experts are coming in, you're going to do a deep dive with, you know, a lot of words that maybe the kids don't understand. And then you've got, you know, the PBS stuff where you're fact checking to make sure there's enough for a story. And maybe you have, a, obviously you have like a visual part that goes with that, with the video. And now here you are with your book, still telling a story, still in the past <laughs> area of your life. And yes, there are, there are, there are images, but they're not moving like, you know, like, like YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so, so you're, you're, you're still storytelling. You're still using your inquiry and your excitement and your passion for what you want to learn to, to get those ideas out. And so, you know, what does that look like? Because I think it was not the plan of this conversation, but I think this idea of taking what we love to learn and then being able to spread that joy and that excitement to other people, but then understanding the medium and the audience for that to connect versus like, here's my, you know, here it is. Here's my, my stand and deliver thing. And I'm going to do it. I don't care if you're four years old or, or 90 years old or, you know, speak English or don't speak English, I'm, this is what I'm doing. And either you get on, on the gravy train or not, you, you've clearly diversified and figured that out. So when it's come to your book, what was your <laughs> process with that in terms of taking your passion to your inquiry and, and telling a story in that format? Yeah, so with, with, with tours and with eons, we get immediate responses. Like if kids are keeping their eyes on me and they're not yawning and they've got their little mouths open a little bit, I knew I, I'm, yes, 
I'm doing it right type of thing. And with Eon, the second we post it, people are A, going to tell us if we said anything wrong immediately. (laughs) And B, they're going to tell us, you know, what they liked and what they didn't like about the episode. So we get real time feedback. The book, totally different. Absolutely terrifying. Like, I didn't know if people were going to like it until months and months and months and months after I wrote it. And so the process was a lot of fun. This was my first book. And I worked with a new publishing company, Neon Squid, who is, they specialize in children's books, science children's books only. That's the only thing they they publish, which was really great. They reached out to me to write the book, uh, which was very flattering. Um, they they were like, no, we don't have anybody else in mind. If, if you want this book, it's yours. Like, you don't have to send in a writing sample. Like, we get it. We know who you are. This is this is good. And I was like, oh, thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so the book was kind of broke down into three parts. When they first originally pitched me the book, they just wanted it to be about dinosaurs. And I was like, that's boring. Um, and so I was allowed to kind of be a little bit more flexible. I mean, you know, I would say a third of the book is the Mesozoic is dinosaurs, but I was able to sprinkle in a little bit more. So the first chapter is the Precambrian, second chapter is the Paleozoic, and then boom, the big Mesozoic chapter, and then I have a little Cenozoic chapter at the end. So we're able to kind of go through time. And I was, I really wanted my book to go in time, in geologic time, so oldest, each story is older than the one that comes next type of thing. I really wanted that. And so the first phase for them was to basically give them a table of contents, make an Excel sheet that has all the stories that you want to write. That was really hard. I mean, for the most part, I was like, okay, I got to talk about ash falls. I got to talk about this. I got to talk about that. You know, like some of them were right there in the forefront and I knew it. I knew what I wanted to write about. But then others, I did not know, like I didn't know very many famous Silurian period localities at all. So there was definitely some legwork on some of these periods to try to find the most fascinating story, like discovery story or something about the research, about the animal that is fascinating. I wanted something else beyond look this dinosaur was this big and weighed this much and lived during this time I wanted it to have a fun either discovery story or a discovery about the animal so that was a lot of fun I looked at hundreds hundreds of localities through time um I definitely have enough for another book so I really hope they talk to me in the next couple of years about making a part two because like (laughs) there's I'm still second guessing some of the choices that I made oh maybe this one would have been better oh no you know right right uh so that was the first part and then once they approved my my list I started to do these briefs so each single story all they wanted was a paragraph they just wanted a synopsis and then some figures that they could send to the illustrator to help help them kind of visualize how the page would lay out and what would be illustrated on the page. That's not how I work. (laughs) I do not work in summaries. I work in full stories. And so for every single brief, I would basically write the whole thing. When it was discovered, who discovered it? How did they discover it? What is the animal? Why is it cool? I mean, usually my briefs were anywhere from like a page to two pages of text, just about everything. I kind of 
my theory was I'm going to put all this work into the brief, get all this information, the full story in the brief, send it to them. They can read through it. They are the children's book people. They know what kids like. And so when they send me back the pages with the illustrations on it, I'll kind of be able to tell what they think is the most important part of the story. And then I can pull those out of the brief and kind of lay them out into more of a story because some of them are a little bit more bullet pointed or something like that. And so then I would send, I always try to find pictures of the actual locality, pictures of people working in the locality. Um, obviously, the skeleton of whatever we're talking about, fleshed out reconstructions, ecosystem images, if I could find them. And so these briefs got to be anywhere from like, oh my God, <laughs> usually like two pages to like four pages or five pages, depending <laughs> on how many uh, reconstructions and things that I found to put in the briefs. So I would send those out in batches. I would have to do between six and nine briefs a week and send them back to the publisher. And then they would read through them and they would send their notes to the illustrator. She would, <clears throat> she would create these wonderful, basically just line drawings, no color yet, just sketches. And then they'd send it back to me and I would check it out and be like, oh yeah, that looks good. That looks good. Oh, that's kind of weird there. The sizing is off or, you know, blah, blah, blah. The sauropod feet are wrong, whatever. And um, then they would send it back to her for color and edits. And then it would come back to me to make sure that the colors look good and all the changes that I made were, were in there and stuff like that. And then once the page was fully colored and it was done, they send me word count. And so my job was to fill in these word counts with my story. But I had to make sure to write it so that the block of text talking about an illustration was next to the illustration. So that took some creative maneuvering every once in a while. Um, and also, I they wanted each story to kind of begin slightly different. At first, I was just kind of like, so-and-so found it in this year and this is how they found it and they were kind of like yeah all your stories kind of start like that like maybe think about setting the stage you know like like what it was like when they were alive and then kind of pivot into the discovery and I was like okay I can do that I can do that I can do that and so some stories lead a little bit better to that like the fighting dinosaurs for example the the velociraptor and protoceratops locked in battle for eternity or whatever that one lends itself a lot easier to like setting the stage like what kind of led to those two dinosaurs meeting up and fighting in the first place type of thing um <clears throat> and so i would send my text back to them and they would send it to an editor and what i most noticed about my editor was adding like action words <laughs> I was bad at adding action words yeah. or um, in like parentheses or like I was envisioning a word being in the glossary and they would put like, oh, a geologist is somebody who studies rocks. I'm like, I figured that, I figured if somebody wanted my book, they would know what a geologist was already. Yeah. But anyway, so they were just kind of adding in some, some things here and there, but not a whole lot of major changes or anything for any of the stories. And then, yeah. They laid it all out and sent me a finished page and I gave them the thumbs up and then off it went. And so that's basically what I did for a year, I think, almost almost a year perfectly um, because, let's see here, I have it, yeah. Um, 
they sent me the first email February 11th, 2021. And I sent my final piece, which was the dedication February 2nd of 2022. Nice. So almost exactly a year of, of working on it. And it was a lot. It was a lot. I mean, I still had eons work to do. I still have campus work to do. Um, so there was a, a lot of late nights. Yes. Uh, but luckily, the world still wasn't quite back to normal yet. And so there wasn't a lot of pressure to be going out and doing stuff, um, which was really nice. But I think if I do another book, there's going to have to be a little bit more time management. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite the task, you know, and it's, <clears throat> as you're talking through that process, it almost re like reminds me of what you were sharing earlier of your college days where here's the paper and you have to write the abstract but in this case you also had to write the paper first and then do the abstract but do it in a much more tinier ecosystem of children's literature and aligning it with the pictures and so you know maybe your your professor was setting you up for success back then and you didn't even you didn't even realize it at that point but uh I would have had no idea <laughs> Undergraduate college Callie would would be shocked if she knew how much peer-reviewed journals she reads on a weekly basis. Because whenever I fact check a script, I mean, I just closed a window. I finished fact checking a script last night and I just closed the window this morning and I probably had 25 tabs open and almost every single one of them was a peer-reviewed journal. Like I am a Google Scholar whiz. I can find anything. I can find any paper. And luckily, since I still work at a university, I have access to the interlibrary loan system too, which is oh, savior yeah. most of the time. So um, I consume a lot of scientific papers, a lot. And you get good. The more you read them, I swear, the more you read them, the better you get at reading them. So you don't read the whole papers anymore. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Now you got to figure out how to make sense of it all. <laughs> You're right. And and also it does make it a little bit easier that I am reading papers about paleontology and I'm not like reading physics, you know, no offense physics, but, right. you know, like I'm already interested in it. So I'm like, oh, tell me more um, instead of like, oh, put me to sleep, you know, like <laughs> it helps. It helps. Yes, absolutely. This has been great. I want to be respectful of your time here. I know we're we're you're 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 a busy person, as we've 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 discovered, as everybody seems to be busy these days. And so, as as we wrap this up, I think it's been so wonderful to hear the processes and the thoughts, and and just gaining your perspective through all the different things that you're doing. Uh, there's so much that I think for us to to think about in terms of our own practice, and and just thinking about. I think that reminder of of who we are, what we love to learn about, and and not being afraid to go in and pursue those things in whatever shape or form that takes. But I want to wrap up with two things. One, is there anything that you want to share that you didn't get a chance to share? And then number two, I know I'll I'll get the links and everything in the show notes if people want to reach out to you. But if there's anything that you want to to shout out or 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 plug uh, verbally here this is your chance to do so. And then we'll definitely get it all linked for people to, to check out and uh, learn more about you and your work. Yeah, man, we covered a lot today. We did, we did. Is there anything I'm forgetting? 
I think one of my number one feedbacks that I get whenever I do like a presentation or a tour is people are really overwhelmed sometimes with my enthusiasm, <clears throat> but in a positive way. Like, like I gave a talk about 325 million year old fish fossils to a room of dinosaur paleontologists. And I had so many of them coming up to me afterwards saying like, well, now I want to study fish. Thanks. You know? And so I think like my, if, if anybody was asking me like, how do I get to where you are or something is be incredibly enthusiastic and passionate. I mean, to like 11, turn that enthusiasm knob to 11 and, and be extremely excited about what you're already talking about. Some people are better than others. Obviously know your strengths. Like, our writers are really great writers, but they might not want to ever be on screen type of thing. So you need to play to your strengths. And I am a good public speaker. Um, and so that's what I do. I do the public speaking. But if you are a public speaker, that enthusiasm really comes across to people. And I feel it whenever I go to big meetings and things like that. If somebody's up there just droning on and on and on and they seem bored with their science, I'm going to be bored with their science. If they get up there and have memes and pop culture references and are funny and make you laugh, they're keeping you entertained. Like there's a word in YouTube in the YouTube world called edutainment. So entertaining education. And I think that's really a fun word and it really encapsulates a lot of what you can do just by being entertaining and enthusiastic while you're also trying to teach. Um, so that would just definitely be one of my biggest um, biggest takeaways from my entire career is the more excited I am, the more I can make my audience excited about it. Um, and then what was the other part of that question? Yeah, people want to oh, reach out to yes. more about <clears throat> your work, yeah. Heck yeah. So I'm most active on Instagram, fossil underscore librarian. You can find me there. I think I have all fossil librarian handles on all the platforms, but I'm basically most often always just on TikTok or not on TikTok. I am on TikTok, but I'm not active on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I consume TikTok. I yeah, don't make TikTok. There you go. <laughs> uh, but I'm definitely the most active on Instagram. Um, obviously youtube.com slash eons if you're unfamiliar with the show and want to check us out um my book tales from the prehistoric world is now available wherever you get books everywhere you get books so support your small bookstores and, uh, i'll have some book signings coming up um i'll have a couple in montana if y'all listeners are in montana but i'll also be in kansas city in january um and in British Columbia in November so <clears throat> I'm going to try to get as many anytime I travel I'm going to try to set up a, a book signing so if you do have my book great if you do have my book and you love my book please review it online so the algorithm can serve my content to more people <laughs> we can get um, we can get part two right <laughs> yes <laughs> and we get part two get all the things that didn't make the first cut uh yes. and things have changed obviously we call it the eons curse it's like every single time we release an episode within like a couple of months new research comes out 
<laughs> and wouldn't you know, it happened to my book on a couple of stories that already new research has come out about something that I mentioned in the book. So science is always changing. You're always going to have to have new additions. But yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Yes. Well, I love your your, your last piece of, of insight there, just to bring the enthusiasm to to whatever it is that you do. Put all the links to all your show notes where people can check all that out. And I hope they do check out your work and, and follow you on Instagram and get a hold of your book and and just continue to to you know follow your journey and and continue to inspire everyone that you do. So I can't thank you enough for your time. This has been wonderful. And uh, you know, wish you the best of luck and all the things you've got going on and all the things that are gonna happen when you know that that beauty of whatever comes next. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for having me. This was a lot of fun. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation, living on that edge of chaos, going insane, listening to coffee chugs like happy for the boring. One of the top teachers in Iowa, word is born, here to show the world that there's more here than corn. Chaos.